Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter, too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by speechtherapypd.com. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures. I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current Board of Trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG-13, SCISHA, the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAB, a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite podcast from speechtherapypd.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with speechtherapypd.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator. And I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. 
So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. All right, everybody. I have... I don't even know where to begin. Today's episode is basically a freaking miracle that we've pulled this off because we've literally had to divert from four natural disasters because I kid you not, we had an ice storm, a thunderstorm. I lost power, got stuck in a hurricane, couldn't get back home in time to record or to technically to to record. We moved. And then today we're recording in anticipation of a blizzard hitting my house on Saturday. So they're here to clean the chimneys because our chimney doesn't work and we're knowing that we're going to lose power at the new house. So today is a miracle that we're pulling it off. If you hear weird scraping noises, besides the dog's jingling collar, it is a chimney getting clean for safety and not murder. Oh, Lindsay, my basement looked like a murder basement when we bought the house because they literally slaughtered pigs in the side yard and hung them in the basement. So like... I can't make it up. It's a really nice house, but had a murder basement. So the scraping noises are not affiliated with the murder basement. They're affiliated with the chimney. And on that note, those are your disclosures to kick us off today. But y'all, none other than the most gracious Lindsay Stevens. And holy cow, thank you for allowing me to fall apart for a year and regroup. Right. We all do it. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Okay. So dog escaped. That's great. (laughs) At least the guy is still on the roof and not have, hasn't fallen. Yes. Oh yes. Because it's a three-story roof. So we're also on the lookout and it has me nervous, but we put a prayer on that before we begin recording today. So like, yeah, we did. Uh, But on that note, how are you, Lindsay? Hi. Hi. Good. Hello. I'm great. I'm so excited for this new year and just filled with like ambition and excitement. And yeah, I'm doing great. Yes. Love this. Okay. So I know you, but folks don't know who you are or where you're from, but you are Lindsay Stevens, a pediatric feeding and swallowing guru and with gel mix, which is, I like to explain, it comes from a sea bean, but not the chocolate one and not the cocaine one. <laughs> so like, that, that's my explanation. I'm going to add that to my education sessions. <laughs> and you know, well, people giggle and then they sit up and pay attention because, you know, <laughs> You're like, oh, it's not, not cocaine. cocaine. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not, co- not cocaine. That's so funny. Although I did go to a patient's house one time, and I kid you not, their big, giant white dog's name was Kane, and they had what? adopted the dog. And I was like, Kane? And I was thinking like Kane and Abel because, you know, oh, okay. grew up yeah, Southern Baptist. And she's like, nope, not that kind. And I was like, oh. <laughs> but, okay, so give us your backstory. Tell us about you. Yes. Well, so I've been practicing as a speech pathologist for almost 22 years now. And the majority of my career was at Phoenix Children's Hospital here in Phoenix, Arizona. So I really kind of grew up there. You know, before I worked at the hospital, I worked in the schools for a few years and the hospital was just life changing, right? I mean, I was 
able to collaborate with a variety of different disciplines and, you know, served on our aerodigestive team. And I worked in all of the acute care service lines. So the neonatal intensive care unit, the pediatric intensive care unit, the cardiac intensive care unit, and then just the general acute floor. I also worked in outpatient. I worked in our inpatient rehabilitation program for several years as the dedicated therapist there. And then about four and a half years of my tenure there at Phoenix Children's, I was the hospital's first clinical specialist of speech pathology. So that was really cool because it was like this new position and, you know, it incorporated a variety of different things. I wore very, very many different hats, but one of my main roles was educating, you know, other staff, training other staff, and then also overseeing our outpatient multidisciplinary pediatric feeding disorder program. So now it's called pediatric feeding disorder program or clinic, I think. But that was awesome because I got to work really, really closely with Dr. Dana Williams. She's a gastroenterologist. And again, with the aerodigestive team, really closely and just the awesome, awesome therapists who were just amazing. And a few of them are still there, but a lot of them have kind of gone on to other locations. But that was really a neat experience to be able to, to lead in that way, but also just to learn so much more, you know, um, having that really strong acute background kind of going into like what this looks like long-term. Well, so during this process that I was at the hospital, I have two kids and both of them had dysphagia. And so, you know, I got into the field because I just have such a heart for serving and a heart for helping people. And I knew that I wanted to do something in the helping people world. I just didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. And when I came upon this career, I was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect, you know? So, I actually got into it thinking I was going to work with adults and, you know, kind of like a generic, what do you call those classes that are like the survey class you take? So there was an adult who came to our class who had aphasia, he'd had a stroke. And I thought, oh my gosh, I want to help people communicate. You know, to me, that's like the foundation. I mean, it is like the foundation of how we establish relationships and, you know, and serve one another. So anyway, that's how I got into it. And then after I graduated from graduate school, I got into peds and then I was like, oh, this is totally where I want to be. So anyway, so both my kids had dysphagia and my daughter came first and I was just kind of, you know, in denial. My husband's like, there's no way <laughs> that she has dysphagia. So, but she was coughing and choking when she was breastfeeding and she ended up having some food allergies and reflux and a minimal type one cleft. So a deep inner retinoid notch. And, you know, so she all the, saw all the specialties and all the things. So that definitely gave me such a different perspective for being on the parent side. I was working in the NICU actually at the time when I was pregnant with her and, you know, each week would go by and I'd be like, oh my gosh, okay, 27 weeks, 28 weeks, like, okay, you know, come see these kids at those stages and just be so thankful for the health um, because you can just see everything that goes wrong. And it's just a miracle. I mean, it's just such a miracle that God designed our bodies the way he did and that everything comes together and works the way it should. So anyway, I love you. You just, I, I just do, you just radiate joy and hope. And 
And and I distinctly remember because I had two preemies like and did bed rest with both of them. And every week I ticked off, but I did EI home health. And so I would get them when they were out of the NICU, but I'm like, okay, I remember this patient was born at this week, this patient. And so like I, I ticked it just like you did, but from the home health side. So, but thank you for being raw. Okay. So that was your little girl. How old is your little girl now? She's 13 now. Oh, and that's sassy. <laughs> I know. She has been sassy since she was like 13 months old. Seriously. You know, people are like, wait till she's a teenager. I'm like, no, she's like an infant teenager. Yeah, she, is. <laughs> so, she is, but I'm so proud of her. And, you know, my colleagues at the hospital, when I came back from maternity leave and was talking to them about oh gosh, you know, she's having these difficulties. I was so thankful for them because it's so hard to wear, as you probably know, your mom hat and your speech pathologist hat, right? Oh my gosh. And I felt so pressured to do that. But anyway, I came back to the hospital after maternity leave and my good friend and my colleague, Kelly, had just really helped me navigate everything. We finally got modified barium swallow study and, you know, got into the right professionals. And actually Dana Williams was the one that saw my daughter. She was the one that I worked so closely with at, at Phoenix Children's. But anyway, so yeah, so she's 13. And the reason I brought up my colleague Kelly is because she also helped kind of parent, you know, she helped me parent this really strong willed, spirited, sassy girl. And I remember her and a few other colleagues just being like, it's good that she's strong-willed, you know, you want that in a girl. So we've definitely tried to kind of shape her personality to be a leader, you know, and a leader who listens to people and not just bosses people around. <laughs> my, I have a 12-year-old niece and she bullies the daylights out of my 11-year-old. I mean, Sammy Sam bosses the daylights out of Goose. And I was talking to my sister about it because Goose doesn't know what to do. Like, hell, she put him in a headlock, right? And Goose knows he can't hit a lady, even his own cousin. And so he just he just took the licking. There's no other way to say or describe what happened. And so I was like, my sister, her nickname is Squat. And I was like, Squat. I was like, Samantha Ann is demonstrating very strong leadership skills. So we need <laughs> not to be around my son's neck. Right. Because, yep, I agree. <laughs> but like, we'll, we'll tell him not to be so violent. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Violence, Absolutely. violence is violent. But she's going to be amazing, whatever she puts her mind to. I hope so, yes. We always know she's going to be a lawyer, right? Because she can argue and defend her side, you know, till the cows come home. So, um, but she's awesome. She's, she's amazing, but yeah, she still has some feeding difficulties this year. She's great. I, I mean, like as a 13 year old, um, she just turned 13 several months ago, but yeah, I mean, she was, you know, falling off the charts and we had to do a pediatric supplement and thankfully we never had to do anything like a feeding tube or anything like that, but yeah, she still struggles. I mean, this morning she took three bites of a bagel and was like, I'm full. I'm like, (laughs) it's been hard. And then um, of course, you know, just understanding the the struggles that parents have at home when, you know, you're away from the clinical landscape and you're dealing with them eating several times a day, day in, day out. Like, are they going to eat? Are they not going to eat? How much are they going to eat? Is what they're eating healthy? I mean, just, you know, so, so I definitely have that 
a little more experience than I would have liked in that area. But it definitely gives me such a good perspective when I'm working with families because I can definitely understand where they're coming from and all the challenges and, you know, dealing with the physicians and the physicians who don't know what they're talking about. That was actually one of my first challenges was her pediatrician when she was born literally did not understand swallowing, didn't know what a modified gram swallow study was, you know, didn't understand really what dysphagia was. And so that was eye-opening. I was trying to educate this physician at the same time as I was trying to advocate, you know, for my daughter. So I just spoke with a lovely lady, Marion, if you're listening, it was lovely talking with you. And Marion works here in Virginia in the same state with the children's health care system. And she was talking about this case that she had and she was having to advocate and her frustration with the specialist and the doctors simply not knowing why she wanted a referral to GI, why she wanted a referral to these places. And she was like, it's as if they've never heard of this before. And folks, if you're listening, a gentle reminder, they probably haven't heard of pediatric feeding disorder. Let's be honest, this diagnosis code is two and a two and a half years old. And so if they went to school during the timeline where it was just dysphagia, we recently kind of incorporated esophageal dysphagia into our scope, then they probably didn't have the exposure or the understanding. I'll trickle back to past episodes where we've had my sweet friend, Tessa Gonzalez, Dr. Tessa Gonzalez. She's a pediatrician, also a PFD advocate and mommy. Tessa, I love you. Um, But she's talked about her training with basic developmental skills as a pediatrician is scant because they're so focused on, as she explains, keeping them alive and identifying when they need to send a specialist, right? So- At the hospital, that was really eye-opening to me. And then working after the hospital, I um, started my own business and I've seen, you know, kids for feeding, swallowing, speech language therapy, and done a few other things as well. But yeah, actually, I just started or I just signed on to volunteer with Feeding Matters. I know you're a volunteer for them too. I know. I'm so excited. I've worked with them or I've, I shouldn't, yeah, I've worked with, or I did work with them really closely at the hospital. And, you know, this was back with Chris Lynn and, and Shannon. And now, you know, Jacqueline is just amazing. I'm so just, she's an awesome person. Anyway, I'm just so excited to be doing this. And the reason I bring it up is because it's going to be basically educating physicians in the community about pediatric feeding disorder and feeding and swallowing difficulties. Because I think going back to what you're saying about how they don't really have a great grasp on development and they focus on other things, which is exactly what they should be doing. You know, we want doctors to keep us alive, right? I mean, historically, feeding and swallowing problems have been acknowledged or present in, not present, acknowledged in kids with pretty significant developmental disorders or complex medical disorders. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's like they kind of know, oh, that's part of what happens with a syndrome. But, you know, these typically developing kids, like my kids, like they're typically developing. I mean, they have their quirks, but (laughs) they, you know, (laughs) I'm sure they're going to listen to this one day. So hi, Ashley and Bryce. I love you. Yeah. I mean, they're typically developing. So that was another thing that just, I think, threw off so many physicians was like, wait a second, they don't have Down syndrome. They don't have cerebral palsy. You know, there wasn't this significant history 
in the family with any genetic disorders, anything like that. So that's another thing that I'm just excited about sharing the knowledge and the evidence base for is, you know, these kids that have these complexities that are that are typically developing. I love that Feeding Matters is branching out and, and putting focus in that critical needs area. So folks, if you're listening and you too are frustrated with the lack of education in your community around PFD, you can schedule a few minutes on your lunch break, or if you're in home health, do a drop-off or a drive-by of Feeding Matters literature to a pediatrician's office. Those little moments, those, and reach out to them because they will train you in what to say and how to do it, but those moments are impactful. One of the suggestions that I give and that I've given for years is when you have a patient that has a new diagnosis, and it's maybe your first time working with this pediatrician's office, after you've done the report, write up your report, write up your plan of care, staple it together, hand deliver it to the pediatrician's office, ask to speak to the referring nurse, ask to speak to the pediatrician's nurse, especially if you need referrals out to like an allergist or an ENT and bring donuts or something. If you feed <laughs> yeah. them, they will come. Also, do you remember my big fat Greek wedding? And they're like, the man is the head of the house, but the, the wife is the neck and she tells him where to look. Dude, the nurses are the neck. Okay. Oh, so true. So true. Right. <laughs> So, and I don't say this just because I have two sisters who are nurses, but like, I know, but if you lead with kindness and seeking to understand instead of just living in the frustration and trust me, I have enough Irish in my blood that I can live in the anger. Family dark Irish. We are what we are, but did you say dark Irish? Dark Irish. That's what my dad called us. We're dark Irish. And I'm pretty sure there may or may not have been a body buried once upon a time on somebody's property, but like, (laughs) just a warning. Just a warning. That's a story for a different day. But I get that. And I commiserate with that frustration, but this is something that we can do that's actionable and joyful and can turn the tide. So there's that. Yes. And I love that you said, you know, approach the various disciplines and anyone really with kindness and understanding because that, I mean, most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, the people who are in the field of helping people. So, you know, medical professionals, healthcare professionals, physicians, all of us, it's like, we all just want to help, right? Like we all just want to make a life better and help the life to let their little light shine. And so, yeah, I think that if you come from a compassion perspective and trying to educate in a, in a gentle way that I agree, that's the way you should do it. Yes. Yes. I view it as we've been called to help be healers. Like it's our job to like, and I don't do the healing. I just facilitate the opportunity for that to occur. In this walk of yours, that's so deeply personal and soulful. How did you come across gel mix? How did that enter into your life? (laughs) Yes. Well, okay. So I resigned from the hospital because I felt like, I was just watching my kids' lives go by. Like I was very, very career-driven and again, took on a lot of responsibilities at the hospital that I was so thankful for, but I also was just burning the candle at both ends. And so I decided, you know what? My kids are young once. They kind of had a lot going on at that time. And I thought I need to 
take a step back and just kind of be able to focus on them. And so what I wanted was more time. So I still wanted, obviously, to be a speech pathologist and be professional and help people in that way. So I, like I said, I started my own business and I also did a lot of home health. I worked for another organization. I saw several you know, kids for in-home health. So that was an excellent opportunity, again, for like getting the perspective of how things happen, you know, in the home setting. And then the pandemic hit and I thought I was going to poke my eyes out <laughs> sitting in front of the computer all day long. That was such a hard time. I know everyone says that and everyone has their own perspective of why that was so hard. But that was so hard. And I just got to a point where I was like, I don't feel like I'm helping anymore, you know, doing telehealth visits and, and things like that. So when I worked at the hospital, Melissa, our COO, she had done, you know, site visits and she had come to Phoenix Children's Hospital. And this was probably in 2011. The company got started in 2010 with Gelmix. And anyway, so I had met her and I just really loved her energy. And I believed in the product. You know, we used Gelmix and Purithic at Phoenix Children's extensively. And I also was at the hospital when the whole debacle with xanthan gum thickener came. And so I have been in the field and you're probably the same way long enough to see the pendulum swing, you know? So it was, it was okay. (laughs) You just called me old. You called me old. I love you. (laughs) Sorry. Accomplished and experienced. (laughs) That's why we have Botox and mine was freshly done. Right. Man, I need to get on that. Anyway, so so yeah. You look amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Anyway, so, you know, I definitely have been through the various perspectives. And, you know, I feel like I have a strong opinion that thickening can be helpful when other uh, opportunities or other um, strategies that we have in our toolbox aren't effective or aren't consistently effective. Um, So, anyway, so I reached out to Melissa and I definitely feel like it was a God thing because I had been praying about wanting to do something different, wanting to help. I feel when I'm not helping, I feel really down. I feel really down when I feel like I'm not contributing, you know, whether it's to my family or to um, the world or, you know, however it may be. So anyway, so I reached out to her and I said, you know, I'm looking to do something a little different. Do you remember me? (laughs) And she said, we were just talking about hiring a speech pathologist. So I definitely think it was a blessing. And we went from there. So I started with them part time, and then went full time. And here I am, it's just been a really neat experience. Because like I said, I believe in the products, the whole company, which is small is just made of people with integrity. And, you know, people who want to help other people. And that's, Another thing that I've been so proud to work for the organization because they know what an amazing product gel mix and pure thick are. They know the benefits and how gel mix in particular can get infants 
oral feeding, you know, gel mix can give them those oral feeding experiences to help with oral feeding and oral motor and oral sensory sensory development. And so they want to get it into everyone's hands who needs it. So they really are doing a lot of things at a national level to try to just get it covered by insurance. And, you know, we have a discount program that I can talk about a little bit more that helps get our products into the hands of um, low income families. Yes. Yes. We have to, we have to go there. And I got to be honest, this is Trixie, the conversation that we're about to have because of what you just alluded to. We have been around long enough to see where xanthan gum was um, pulled from the market for children one or even two years and younger, because there is the research to talk about where it can trigger necrotizing intracolitis within the small intestines, specifically at the watershed region between the duodenum and the jejunum, like where those two sections, because you have three sections of your small intestines. Here's your anatomy lessons, folks. You have the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. The duodenum is that first portion after your stomach. Now, in that section, your body is still breaking down the food. Your stomach hasn't completed the process. So the duodenum actually pulls in some of your digestive enzymes. This is where like the gallbladder and the liver actually contribute. And it breaks down the chyme, chyme, chyme. It looks like chyme. chyme. (laughs) Chyme. It breaks it down further. And then in the watershed region, it's where it goes from digestion like break down like digestion components to the absorption piece, right? But that juncture is maybe not the sturdiest of designs for those that are predisposed to all you know what breaking loose. <laughs> is that that's that's that is the simplest terms that I can go with. Now that being said, xanthan gum thickener absolutely has a purpose and a place in older populations. So much so that in like, I can like get out of the bag. I'm actually getting ready to um, introduce, interview the founder of Simply Thick also in the future. He's coming on. I'm the nicest guy you're ever going to meet. And he gives warm hugs. He's like Olaf. (laughs) So like, I believe in a good hug, but there is a purpose and a place for it in our older populations. Just like there's a purpose and a place for gel mix and purithic in our younger populations, because not every infant or toddler is going to be able to utilize different flow nipples in order to be successful, right? It's just a statement of fact, whether that be because of craniofacial differences or um, maybe severity of a bleed, and now they have hemiparesis or hemiplegia on one side, there could be a litany of reasons that it is indicated. And that is okay. So give yourself permission that if your patient is struggling, or if your child is struggling on a bottle flow and a nipple, and you just can't get it right, there are other options that are clinically indicated and warranted. So it's not, um, one of the ladies I work with, her name is Sarah. She's brilliant. Sarah, um, was talking about how we don't throw the baby out with the dishwater or something yes. like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I had forgotten that one. And I was like, wait, why would you throw the baby out? <laughs> and then like <laughs> literal Michelle. And then I like, oh, I was yeah, say, yeah. you need some help with from a speech pathologist with a uh, non-literal. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Anyway, go ahead. My oldest, he takes things so literally, but 
we're a little neurodiverse in our family that like the fact that I had to like translate that one in my head and Sarah got a good chuckle at my expense on that. I was like, oh, snap. (laughs) But yes. So baby bath water or dishwater. Also, why would you wash a baby in dishwater? I don't know. That sounds really gross in and of itself, but like, okay, (laughs) not my baby. But so that kind of like sets the preface, but can you talk to us? What is gel mix? That's not a cocaine bean or a chocolate bean. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So that was all very, very well said. And yeah, I could talk so much about that because yeah, in my practice, you can try positioning strategies. You can try changing the flow rate. You can try, you know, sideline positions. I mean, that's a position strategy. You can try, you know, pacing. I mean, all these different things and they can absolutely be effective and they're the least restrictive, right? So you do want to try the least restrictive things. But what I found was that, you know, the nurse feeds the baby and then the mom feeds the baby and then the speech pathologist feeds feeds the baby. And then maybe like a tech is feeding the baby. And so uh, not everyone is understanding the the things that need to be put in place to feed this baby safely. And so what happens is that the baby's like, generally they're having a safe feed, maybe one out of every 24 hour shift, you know, or 12 hour shift. So I had a thought, some people, and let's be honest, a lot of us don't actually get a pediatric feeding disorder class. Can you describe some of those positional strategies and why they're indicated? Because that would be really, really helpful for some of the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So first, swaddling can be so helpful for infants who have any sort of weakness or, you know, muscle kind of differences. And that's because you want a strong foundation in the trunk and the hips. And, you know, that applies throughout our entire lives, right? But especially with infants and toddlers and kids as they're feeding, you have to have stability in the core and at the hips. So that nice tight swaddle provides that stability for them. And then And, you know, upright, semi-upright feeding has been demonstrated to be safe because literally, like, if you think about, you know, your head tilting back, a lot of people feed a baby maybe laying down or, you know, they're kind of holding them flat. The milk is just kind of going to the back of the throat. Their eustachian tubes haven't completely matured. And so it's really easy for the milk to go into the eustachian tubes and cause ear infections. And then again, it's really easy to just have the liquid flow into the airway. And so typically developing infants who don't have any feeding and swallowing problems, they might be able to keep up with maybe a faster flow rate or a position, you know, that's not ideal for them. They might kind of cough and sputter a little bit. They're okay, right? They're going to handle it. But any infant with any sort of disadvantage, whether it be, you know, difficulties with breathing or difficulties with their muscles, difficulties with their airway, like that's breathing, you know, cardiac difficult. I mean, all the things that can happen, they're not going to be able to be okay with those kind of positions. So the semi-upright swaddled position is ideal. And then there is a lot of research too on the sideline position. Um, so when babies are feeding in a sideline position, it literally allows their rib cage to move better and has been shown to, you know, help them coordinate that suck, swallow, breathe better. And so they don't have as much of an opportunity to get uncoordinated or incoordinated and then have those episodes of, you know, aspiration. And then, and pacing too, you know, there's a lot of research on that as well and how helpful that can be. But like I said, it, it just is hard if the same person's not feeding the baby all the time. You know, that's life, right? Yeah. 
And then when I think about pacing um, and placing the bottle and like I had I had negative encounter with a clinical supervisor one time and I was a seed SLP, but she was still my soup. And she told me I was pacing wrong because I was pulling the entire bottle out of the patient's mouth. And I was like, but here's the catch. This infant can't breathe with the bottle nipple in their mouth. Like I need to get it out. And then lo and behold, like the kid had like laryngomalacia and brachymalacia. And it was just like destatting and like rah, 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 all of these things. But I will never forget it was in that moment that I thought that's when I realized clinically how one strategy can't be applied to everybody the same. Every child's unique etiology or etiologies influences their treatments. But it was just clear as day. Remember thinking, okay, but that worked for this child, but it's not going to work for this child. Yes. So it's okay to take the bottle out. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. There are some infants that when you try to tip the bottle down and keep the liquid out of their mouth, they're going to keep sucking. And so they're not pausing to breathe. And so, yeah, you absolutely have to take it out of their mouth sometimes. That also just goes to show, I mean, definitely that not every strategy applies to every person, you know, every infant, but also that there's so many ways to mess it up. (laughs) So it's like, that's what I would find is I'd put these strategies in place and, you know, post something at the bedside and even try to put it in an order. So the nurses had to follow it. And then it was like, you'd go and you'd see someone feeding them and you're like, no, you know, and you could definitely hear those clinical signs. And so frustrating. So again, that's like another indication for thickening because it's not a fail-proof method. I don't even know if that's the right way to say it, but but it definitely can help. It you know the bolus is heavier. It provides more sensory information to the airway to the brain to start that swallowing reflex. It literally moves slower, so the baby has more of a chance, or the person has more of a chance to start that coordinated process. You know, of the the vocal cords closing, the epiglottis folding over the airway, the upper esophageal sphincter opening or being pulled open. You know, by the laryngeal vestibule. And in younger kids, it's not as much like that. It's their anatomy is kind of situated to protect their airway more, but. It can be beneficial. And I I just think that's so important for newer clinicians to know that it's not a black and white issue at all. It's not, should we thicken or not? It's, will this be the right intervention for this particular child or person? That's where if you are new to the world of pediatric feeding disorders, if you're new to the NICU, the PICU, the floor, if you're new to home health, create your council of elders, reach out phone a friend, you will find that the bulk of us that have been around for a while, Botox and all, we are here to serve and help shape your clinical reasoning skill. I don't know about you, but I love it when people reach out and call with like questions or like shoot me a text because it's just like, that means like also when they come back, I'm like, oh, I didn't suck. My advice was good because <laughs> there's always that fear of like, oh, oh that good totally. advice. <laughs> totally. Yes. I'm so passionate about education and, you know, just helping, giving the information that I've learned, you know, over the years to others. And even though I've had over 20 years experience, I still am like, oh, was that the right thing? Okay. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to, you know, to do all these things. And it's like, I know what I'm talking about. I just need to trust myself, but always being open as well to, you know, maybe you're not right. And maybe there is another perspective or another 
evidence base that you haven't discovered. Yes. Okay. So then what to you are the signs and symptoms that you would say, hey, this patient looks like we need to consider thickening? Yeah. It can look different by age. So infants, you know, their cough reflex is not fully integrated yet. So infants, they can still cough definitely, but a lot of the times they don't cough when something goes down the wrong way. So what they tend to do is they tend to, like, as you're holding them, you have your hand on their back, you can feel like a rattling or a congestion is kind of what I call it. And then they also tend to just kind of shut down. So those are the little ones who might be falling asleep after the first, you know, two sucks or three sucks. They may uh, experience, you know, this is more significant, but experience apnea or bradycardia or tachycardia. So essentially like their homeostasis is not stable. Yeah. Wait, translate bradycardia and tachycardia for those that are not familiar with those terms. Yes. Okay. So apnea is they stop breathing. Tachycardia, their heart rate is up. It's higher than it should be. And their body's working too much and they really can't focus on the coordination of sucking, swallowing, and breathing. Um, And then bradycardia is when it goes down, their heart rate goes down. And then there's tachypnea when they're a respiratory rate goes up, you know, so all sorts of things from a homeostasis perspective that as clinicians, we need to look at with infants because they have to breathe first and they have to maintain homeostasis, you know, swallowing and feeding is secondary. So as much as we can do as clinicians to maintain and support homeostasis and breathing, the better. So, so sometimes, you know, young infants will show those kind of very scary symptoms of, you know, their bodies going out of homeostasis. Like I mentioned, sometimes they just shut down and they stop feeding or they stop sucking. And so, um, you know, a natural tendency of a lot of nurses and feeders in general is to be like shaking the bottle in their mouth, tapping them, trying to get them to take more, take more. And, you know, everyone's volume driven because babies need volume to grow, right? But it's not a quality feed. And if they learn over and over and over that, you know, something happens wrong. I mean, first of all, their muscles are learning the wrong thing, right? They're establishing a motor pattern of aspirating or experiencing, you know, incoordinated swallowing and sucking and breathing. I totally just lost my train of thought. (laughs) Welcome to the club. That's me. That happens all the time. Okay. But that's perfect because I had a question for you or just a, a moment. Folks, if you're in the hospital, it's easy to tell if a patient is tachypnic or having a Brady or like those moments. But if you're home, if you're in home health, if you're in an outpatient clinic and you don't have the luxury of having everything right there, you're looking for color changes in the patient, in the toes, cheeks, fingertips, look at their ribs, look at their clavicle to see if you can see muscle pulling. If you got a baby that's got like intercostal breathing patterns, like this is scary. This is bad news bears. Or if they're just holding their breath and you've got your hand on their chest and you're like, um, yeah, it makes me think of my husband when he snores at night, even though he swears he doesn't snore and he swears I'm the one that snores, but I'm laying in bed and I'm like, okay, you should be breathing. Yeah. Just like elbow. You can't elbow a baby, but I mean, maybe elbow your partner. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Like that is where my train of thought was going. So, you know, sometimes it looks like these major events and then other times it feels, you can feel it on their back, the congestion. And that's not a, a science, right? 
and cervical auscultation is also not a science, but there is some some information to kind of support doing that. But yeah, if you're feeding a baby at home and you you don't have any you know devices to support your guesses, so perioral cyanosis. So sometimes they might get a little blue around the lips. Sometimes they might get a little blue around the forehead and the eyebrows. Color changes, even just redness. Like sometimes if they get red or they get splotchy, sometimes eye watering. So you know there are. A lot of infants who have silent aspiration, and that's something that I feel like is kind of debated in our field, you know, oh, silent aspiration, they didn't cough. And it's like, yeah, they didn't cough. But as a trained professional, I can still tell that they had something going on because of these subtle changes that you're seeing. And then of course, coughing and choking. But again, infants tend to kind of just stop feeding. And then in older children, you know, even out of the infancy stage, coughing and choking, it can also look like frequent respiratory infections, kids who sometimes are diagnosed with asthma. And it's like once they get on a regimen where they're safe, they don't have asthma anymore. It's really interesting. So those kids that come in or that you see that have a longstanding history of, oh, they had RSV multiple times this year and they had pneumonia. I mean, not just pneumonia, pneumonia. Respiratory infections, bronchiolitis. You have, they have bronchitis again. And how many times can this kid get bronchitis? Like Exactly. Yeah. And oh, they, yeah, they always sound like that. They always sound junky, but it's like, wait a second, it gets worse when they're feeding, you know, or when they're eating and drinking. So yeah, those are definitely some, some indications. A big thing too is volume limiting. So, you know, infants, when they're having difficulties with feeding, whether it's aspiration or not, they tend to just take the minimal amount. And that can be, you know, due to so many different things, right? GI things, respiratory things, but they tend to just not take the amount that they're supposed to take. And that's not always the case. You definitely see kids who are taking all the volume they need and they're just like continually aspirating. But yeah, sometimes volume limiting can be a factor. And then as kids get a little bit older too, and they start having more a say, right? in what they eat and don't eat feeding difficulties. So I've seen several, you know, children who it's like, oh, they're a picky eater. Oh, they only eat this one type of food. You know, all the things that look super sensory that definitely still may be sensory, it's like, oh, they also have been experiencing dysphagia since, you know, they were born. So once you kind of get that right, it's like those feeding difficulties tend to improve. So really, really interesting. We have to listen to what they're telling us, even when they can't tell us. That's the biggie. There's populations where you're going to have increased prevalences, but you got to know what you're looking for. So within individuals that have Down syndrome, there's an increased prevalence for having a laryngeal cleft. So oftentimes these are the little ones that, and I've seen it a couple of times over my years, that they do great with purees. They do great with maybe whole milk or a Pediasure. But if you give them water or juice and you go from an itsy level one to an itsy level zero, then they start coughing, sputtering, and they intrinsically know something's not right. And so they refuse that thinner viscosity. But whole milk and the Pediasures are just a little, a little bit more, right? And when you send them in, also they tend to have upper respiratory infections. You have to get them into pediatric ENT who knows what to look for because not all pediatric ENTs are your air digestive tract specialists. You have your pediatric ENTs who focus primarily on ears. And that is a skill set that we absolutely need. But 
I don't want the ear specialist looking at my patient when I'm worried about their throat. So that's where the onus is on us as the um, clinician that's requesting the referral to know your community partners and to say, hey, this is the person that you really need to follow up with. I had four thoughts on my head at the same time. Let me try to connect them. I have heard younger clinicians ask me, and in truth, I have struggled with this response. Well, how come we can't just use rice cereal or oatmeal cereal? And how come we can't just use applesauce as thickeners? Or why can't we just use a baby food as a thickener to make the formula thicker? My informed triangle tells me that rice cereal can increase arsenic exposure. Oatmeal cereal can increase iron levels as well as constipation. And then I go down that rabbit hole, but Educate us, make us better. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm so glad you brought that up because, yeah, rice cereal has inorganic arsenic that's difficult to measure. And the American Academy of Pediatrics came out and said, you know what? Let's just, at first they said, let's limit the amount of rice cereal products that infants have. And then they said, just don't use rice anymore, use oatmeal cereal. So you'll find like several manufacturers stopped making infant rice cereal because of that reason. So oatmeal cereal, right, seems healthy. It's oatmeal, but there's a variety of problems with it. So one is that it has a lot of calories and people think, oh, but the baby needs to gain weight. So let's give them a lot of calories, but they're empty calories, right? So they're not the calories that the infant needs from their breast milk or from their formula that's nutritionally complete with all the vitamins and the minerals and the, again, the ratio of fats and, and things like that that they need. So it's just carbohydrates. That's all it is. So yeah, it might make them gain weight and it actually can predispose them to having diabetes and cardiovascular disease. You know, if you're giving a typically developing infant a little bit of oatmeal every now and then mixed with their breast milk or mixed with their formula to just, you know, give them some spoon feeding, not a big deal. Or, you know, some, some families put it in their bottle at night to help them to sleep so they'll still stay fuller longer. That's not a big deal. But when you have someone who requires oatmeal cereal for thickening purposes for dysphagia or even for reflux, then that becomes problematic because they're going to be taking in so many excessive carbohydrates and calories. So the other thing about oatmeal cereal is that you triggered a connection. Folks, this is the same thought process from like a BMI perspective when you're looking at like toddler and older children that may only eat like like four foods. But if those four foods are chicken nuggets that are high fat and French fries from certain fast food restaurants and Pediasure, then if we look at them from a metabolic perspective, and this is why ooh, I'm, I, oh, when I get really impassioned, I tap on things and I, I I'm going to make everybody's ears rattle, but when, and then I clap. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> I'm like, ah, this is the Southern Baptist. I have a pulpit and it is my desk. But this is why you need a complete metabolic panel because we truly need to work with a registered dietitian to understand what do they look like? Where is their protein, their vitamin D that neurodivergent children and children? Yeah. Yes, they don't always have sufficient levels of because they have limited access and exposure to natural sources like sunlight because of their baseline needs or differences, or truly they may have a underlying metabolic disorder that needs intervention. So when she's talking empty calories, yeah, they're going to gain the weight, but is it the right weight? 
<laughs> I say this after having basically eaten all of the cheese and had all the things for two weeks straight. <laughs> so were they empty calories? Yes. Was my digestive system happy? No, because I am lactose intolerant and do not have a gallbladder, but my tongue, it was very happy. <laughs> I cannot stop eating the dang Christmas cookies, the sugar, with the coating and the sprinkles. I love them. But see, you're I'm a like, sweet person and I'm an umami oh, yeah. person. Yeah. Oh, so sweet. I hate it. Yeah. And every night I struggle. I'm like all day, I avoided the sweets. And then at night I'm like, give me the sweets. It's crazy. <laughs> no, I hear you. That's such a good point. They're not getting the micronutrients. Okay. So the other thing that just goes right along with that is that, so you're adding oatmeal cereal to a bottle, right? Let's say formula because you can't add oatmeal cereal to breast milk for thickening purposes or for reflux. Yeah. You can't add infant cereal to breast milk because breast milk has a variety of different dynamic enzymes. Most one of them is called amylase and essentially those enzymes break down starch. So if you tried adding like a cornstarch product or a infant cereal product, the breast milk is going to literally break it down and then it's not thick anymore. So again, for those families who are offering infant cereal mixed with breast milk by a spoon and it doesn't need to be thick, that's fine. They can do that. But when you're needing it to be thick for whether it's reflux or I should say regurgitation or dysphagia, it it negates the purpose. So I remember the hospital trying to, in the NICU, you know, trying to keep these babies on, on breast milk and trying to be like, okay, if they can eat it in five minutes, then, you know, it's going to be fine for five minutes, but that's just not the case. And that's too unpredictable. So anyway, so definitely don't use infant cereal in breast milk when you're trying to thicken liquids for regurgitation or dysphagia. So say the baby needs to take three ounces of their formula and you want to add oatmeal cereal, right? And you're going to, maybe you're thickening to a level two mildly thick consistency. So you're adding, you know, several teaspoons to per ounce. And so now you don't not just have three ounces. Did I say three ounces or two ounces? I can't remember. Let's go with three. So say you have three and the baby needs to take this three ounces of their formula because that's where the micronutrients are. That's where the vitamins, the minerals and the fats and all the things are, the carbohydrates that they need. Now you're adding bulk, right? So you're adding like a half ounce, let's say, to this volume. So now they have to drink more volume to get all the liquid that they need. So that rarely happens. And again, most of the time, these little ones are limiting their volume. So they're not taking their three ounces. And now you've added and now that they're taking three and a half ounces or whatever it ends up being. And then they're not taking that full volume. So they maybe they took one ounce. Well, how do you know that they got the nutrients that they needed from the milk because they filled up on the bulk? It's a big problem. And I think historically, I know historically, uh, oatmeal cereal has been used because um, it's cheap, it's easy, everybody knows what it is. And sometimes you have to, right? Sometimes there are situations where a little one who needs to be on thickened feeds can't access gel mix or, you know, for whatever reason, they can't get it. And so sometimes you have to, but there are definitely a lot of advantages of using gel mix over infant cereal. 
And that's because gel mix is made of three ingredients. So organic tapioca, maltodextrin, organic carob bean gum, and calcium carbonate. That's it. So it doesn't add calories. I mean, it adds like 10 calories, but it's they're insignificant, right? It doesn't add calories. It doesn't displace the caloric density. So it's not going to, you know, basically have the impact that the cereal does that I just mentioned as far as volume or, or calories, you know, caloric density. So, and that's the same with thickeners, xanthan gum thickeners. Again, we should not be using xanthan gum thickeners in young children, but say you add a xanthan gum thickener to maybe a pediasure or an adult supplement, those are going to basically, you have to increase the caloric density of the liquid to which you're adding it because it's empty calories. So just a lot of disadvantages of other, other thickening agents. So that's the majority of the information with oatmeal. Another thing to consider anytime we add anything to an infant formula or breast milk is osmolality. So osmolality, you know, all the dietitians are familiar with that term. And as speech pathologists, we're not as familiar with that term. Osmolality is the number of molecules and ions per kilogram of a solution. So excessive osmolality, too much osmolality can negatively affect intestinal health and also affect the gut microbiome and stool consistency. So all things that can contribute to bowel infection, bowel death, all bad things, right? Essentially, so infant cereal adds a pretty significant amount of osmolality to the feed. So essentially, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend that osmolality not exceed 450 milliosmoles per kilogram for a breast milk or an infant formula. And the average osmolality of breast milk is around 300 milliosmoles. Infant cereal increases osmolality by 30 milliosmoles per kilogram for every half teaspoon of infant cereal added per ounce of liquid. So that's pretty significant. That's a lot of math. And I'm an SLP, so I don't do math. <laughs> so like, but that makes it way too thick, right? Like what I need to know is it makes... It's not too thick necessarily. It's exceeding the osmolality recommendations, which can then predispose the infant to having problems with their gut. Okay. So in my brain, I turn this into bubble tea comparisons. So because I'm visual, right? Like I ADHD, we're just going to roll with it. So like it essentially means like there's too many of the bubbles in the tea that it displaces the tea and the it makes it bad, which can cause gut death, gut blockage, and bad things will happen. Is that kind of it in a nutshell? Is my bubble tea analogy okay? Kind of for the displacement, I think it's okay. But this is like, if you think of what's in the formula and what's in the breast milk, right? It's vitamins, nutrients, and it's water and it's fat. So that kind of makes up the osmolality of a solution of a liquid. So then when you're adding these um, empty calories and starch and carbohydrates, you're, you're increasing what shouldn't be in there. You're making it too dense almost, not too thick, but too dense. And then the infant's gut can't absorb all of those nutrients and, um, you know, it can lead to a lot of issues. So, so me, when I have too much cheese, now yes, I understand you. you yes. Go. Because you cheese is too, but give me gooey brie cheese with some fig spread and like, I'll eat the whole thing. And then my stomach says bad choices were made. Okay. Right. I'm with you. And, it's a combo I mean, of brie and bubble tea. Right. <laughs> 
And for an adult, you know, who has essentially normal GI system, like your gut can kind of handle that. Yeah, you might have some gas or, or whatever, constipation or diarrhea or whatever the GI symptoms are. But, you know, little ones, infants, their gut can't handle that. And so they end up having pretty serious and sometimes life-threatening issues. So if you add up the amount of cereal that's needed for a little one taking even a slightly thick or a mildly thick consistency or a moderately thick consistency, it can become excessive. The osmolality concentration can become excessive. So we had gel mix tested in a lab to determine how it impacted the osmolality of a ready-to-feed uh, 20 kilocal formula. So that means it has 20 calories per ounce in the formula. And the formula showed a starting osmolality of 322 milliosmoles per kilogram, right? So remember the AAP says it shouldn't exceed 450. So this, the ready-to-feed formula, it's good to go. So when you add 0.3 grams of gel mix, which 0.3 is about what you would need for a slightly thick consistency, the osmolality increased by 10 milliosmoles. So for a mildly thick or a nectar consistency at 0.6 grams of gel mix, it increased to 20. And then for- If we translate that over to IDSI, so like a one and a two? Yes. Yes. So slightly thick is a level one, mildly thick is a level two. So- Anyway, when you do the math, basically increasing the osmolality by 10 milliosmoles and then 20 milliosmoles, gel mix added to standard ready-to-feed infant formula does not exceed osmolality recommendations. So that's another big piece that people don't always think about. You know, they think about, oh, well, it's excessive calories and maybe my baby's going to get fat or, you know, sometimes infants can experience constipation. A lot of infants actually experience constipation with cereal, but it's not always like a a document or a, a research-based finding. Anyway, so it can become really problematic. So a lot of people don't think about that, but gel mix does not exceed osmolality when mixed to the recipes that we provide. That's amazing. It is interesting, isn't it? You guys have been gracious enough to, I know, donate a fair bit over to Dysphagia Outreach Project. Yes. We love them. Yes. So DOP in the house. So folks, if you don't know who Dysphagia Outreach Projects is, Dysphagia Outreach Project was the brainchild of Hillary Cooper and friends. And they set it up such that if you have a patient across the life continuum, NICU to end of life care, and they need supports, whether it be gel mix or a blender or a food processor, or they need, I don't know, they give away so much. These entities donate to them and the licensed clinician, the therapist can fill out an application. It goes before a review committee and they will give it to the patient or the caregivers to help them in a pinch. It's free. The board volunteers their time. The committee people volunteer their time. It truly is. It's a blessing to those who can't afford it. The other side of this is that so many physicians are not aware that there are alternate organic plant-based products available. So many people quickly go to a sugar-based formula, right? When there are things like real food blends or um, I'm just brain farting because it's the end of a day. It's a green bag and it's garbanzo bean based. Yes, Why can I, I not think? I'm like, I, I can see it. 
it. But like there's actual organic plant-based products out there that are like formulas that insurance can pay for. Gelmix and Purithic are some of those. And if you have a patient that you work with and they are recipients of WIC, you can write letters of medical need and that in conjunction with a physician's, sometimes they'll purchase the products. I mean, there's There are options available if your family that you're working with can't afford it. And let's be honest, thickening can be expensive. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So that actually makes me think about our amazing program called We Care. So in the beginning, I alluded to, you know, our organization wants to get gel mix and Purithic into the hands of people who need it because they are healthier alternatives. And Gelmix is actually the only thickener on the market that's safe to use for infants under 12 months of age. It's the only one. And it's also the only one that safely and effectively thickens breast milk. So Gelmix is indicated for regurgitation and for dysphagia. And there are some evidence-based, you know, articles that talk about the research behind thickening. And also NASPGAN and SBGAN, they're the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and then SBGAN is the European Society. Essentially, they came out with clinical practice guidelines in 2018, clinical practice guidelines for reflux. And they stated one of the first-line therapy approaches should be thickening. And they also indicate in their paper that carabine gum thickener is the only thick that's suitable to use for breast milk. And breast milk is best, right? We want to keep infants on breast milk as much as possible, as much as they can handle it. And then gel mix is the only Caribbean gum thickener on the market. So, Well, can you send me those articles so I can add them into the show notes for folks? Because that would be profound. Yes, yes. And I do free education sessions as well through the organization where I present all the information about thickening. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be talking about our products, but I'm giving you like real information about how they compare to other thickening products and why they're better. And yeah, I I talk a lot about the different research that's out there about it. So yes, I will do that. So our program called We Care. Can you do this online for my students? I mean, I know you're in Arizona, but like this would be so freaking cool for my grad students. That's what I do. That's what I do. That's my jam. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, now I'm like, wait. Okay. So in my spare time, because- we have that. I am co-chair or I don't know what my technical title is for Shav, the Speech Hearing Association of Virginia. And I volunteer as um, the co-chair for their special interest group, support group. I'm cool. I know words. We do research like presentations uh, once a month. Ed- Advice does the adults and I do the not adults, but it would be lovely to have you there too. So. Oh yeah. I would love to do that. That's Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's one of the, again, another um, advantage of our company, I think, is that, you know, they hire a speech pathologist and, you know, a speech pathologist who's had a lot of experience and has had hands-on experience with using the products. And so, yeah, definitely I can do that. And so anyone who's listening to, you know, just go to our website, which is www.healthierthickening.com or www.gelmix.com. And there's a place where you can sign up for a free webinar. Okay. So the We Care program, basically, Melissa in particular has really worked very hard at a national level to try to get insurance coverage for thickener. So the issue is that all thickeners, no matter what they are, are covered under one code, and the code is called B4100. So the code reimburses based on weight. 
So that's why, you know, your nursing homes and places like that are always offering, or I shouldn't say always, are frequently offering cornstarch powder thickeners because they get reimbursed, right? But there are so many disadvantages of cornstarch thickeners and so many advantages of pure thick over cornstarch um, cornstarch products. But anyway, so that's why those products get reimbursed. So sometimes our products, which are very light, right? There's only three ingredients. It's a fine powder. It just dissolves into the liquid. They won't get covered for that reason. So Melissa's worked very, very hard at a national level to try to get this changed. And she has made a lot of impact in several different states. In fact, Colorado is one state who the Medicaid program was not covering our products and now they do. So just just really exciting. So for those people who qualify for Medicaid but can't get it covered in their state, they can apply for our WeCare program. And essentially, our program offers a 40% discount off of the retail price of gel mix and Purithic. So it really can make a big, big difference for someone. can be a game changer. And then, yeah, we always advocate for dysphagia outreach project for those families if that's not enough. So have you heard of FAIR? F-A-R-E? No. Okay. FAIR is the FAIR project. As many emails as I get from this lovely organization. Let me see. Functional formularies. That was the great, that was, sorry, that was the garbanzo bean one that came up Uh in my mind. FAIR is Food Allergy Research and Education. And their amazing entity that's also advocating in conjunction with, I think Feeding Matters is behind it. There's a couple of other programs that they're trying to get a bill passed And it was tied up in a Republican senator's office in North Carolina. So if, um, thank you. So if you're listening and you're in North Carolina, message me. The bill would make it mandatory to cover for insurances, to cover like essentially enteral um, and parenteral feeds. I can't, words are hard. By insurance across the life continuum. And so it seems to me that this would be a logical support would be to have this embedded within because volume driven is not clinically indicated. It's quality, not quantity. But while they're requiring alternate means of nourishment and we're working for the oral stage, it just seems like that would be a logical, just a thought to give to the COO because that seems like a hand-in-hand partnership. Oh, absolutely. And she might even be familiar with it. She's been working really closely with Feeding Matters too. So um, yeah, but that's, I will definitely pass that along. That's, that's interesting. That's a really big thought. And then I had one other one, but it will come to me and I will message you later. One other thing I wanted to say. Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. Um, So you were talking about, you know, xanthan gum thickeners and they have a place and, and I agree. However, I would advocate that Pure Thick is a perfect alternative to xanthan gum and cornstarch thickeners. And that's because Pure Thick also is only three ingredients, organic tapioca, maltodextrin, terra gum, and calcium carbonate. And so it does not displace the chloric density of the liquid that you're adding it to. It does not displace the volume. Um, it does not have a negative mouthfeel, so it's not slimy like xanthan gum thickeners can be. It doesn't leave a residue in your mouth. It just literally dissolves into the liquid and it's smooth. So it's also not, you know, grainy like cornstarch powders can be. 
Purific stays the same consistency over time, which is so important with anyone who wants to, you know, mix up a drink in the morning and then have it 10 minutes later (laughs) or an hour later or 24 hours later. It stays that same consistency over time. So it's very, very palatable and cost-wise is really similar to Xanthan gum thickeners. So definitely check out Purific if you're considering using another type of thickener. I, with my whole heart, have to tell you thank you. The the amount of notes that I have taken, also osmolality, this is a word I'm going to need to practice saying. Thank you for being so willing to tie the, your time um, and, and share this because that is, um, you are lifting us all up. So thank you. That's my goal. Yes. Okay. Now, where can folks reach you and where can they find you and or pure thick gel mix on the land of social. Yes. Okay. So we do have a Facebook group, a support group. We are also on Instagram. And what is your handle? Uh, Oh, I found it. Healthier thickening. There we go. Following. Got it. Oh, look at there. There's Jacqueline Peterson. I love her. (laughs) She's awesome. Okay. So we're on there. And then, um, do you have your own email address that you'd be willing to share or point of contact where folks could reach you or, um, yes. So my email address is L as in Lindsay and then Stevens S T E V E N S at healthier thickening.com. Thank you. Now I'm throwing this on you at the last minute, but if folks are listening and they have a little extra love money lying around, is there a location or a place that you'd recommend that they donate it to, to help someone out in need? Oh, definitely dysphagia outreach project. Yay. Beautiful. And folks, you know, Aaron and I can be found on Instagram at first by podcast. Also at Aaron forward SLP and Michelle Dawson SLP. We have our own little account spines, basically food and the kids. Let's be honest, not related to the first bite podcast because products, services, and all things are different. Be sure to check out the First Bite Boutique. <laughs> but again, <laughs> totally separate entity and organization. But uh, And you can find our brand new gear. We have our Fed is Fed is Fed sweatshirts and t-shirts, our Chase the Swallow sweatshirts. I, see, I sweatshirt. love that one you're working with. You're wearing. <laughs> It's got a colon on it. And then the connect first. And we have more coming. We have one that's a hashtag SLPs of faith. And I'm very excited about that one. Awesome. That's great. Yes. But check us out there. And then uh, uh, thank you for tuning in and supporting First Bite and building our little community and making us stronger. Lindsay. Yeah, and Michelle, you're doing amazing things. So thank you so much for this opportunity. I just am, you know, beside myself with respect for you and what you're doing and just grateful for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. And God, thank you for letting me cancel 4 million times and then pay the chimney guy. Thank you for joining us for today's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile, Prior to course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to reflect on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Feeding Matters 
guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.